Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Corey. Good morning. How's Randy How's doing? In Idaho. <laughs> uh, how am I doing? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm doing pretty good for a guy who doesn't have a job. You don't have a job? No, I'm the most underemployed person you're ever going to meet, and that's by design. <laughs> <laughs> who wants a job? You're yeah. always complaining about how busy you are and how much. Well, I know. That's because I don't have a job. If I had a job, I could tell people, no, I can't do that. Nope, I'm busy. Nope. As Isn't it that is, the when truth? you don't really have a job, you, you say yes to everybody. I hear you. Yeah. Oh. So, life in Idaho, good? You guys, are you, is it raining there today like it is here? It's, it's I, supposed to snow right here. I wish it was raining. We got a thunderstorm that came through last night, but we didn't get any moisture out of it. Hmm. And we could use some moisture. I, this is the driest and the earliest that snow's melted off. I mean, it's just... It's not looking yeah. great, and we're obviously we're Idaho, so we don't. You know, we've yeah. got water in the mountains, but it's dry. We're the same here. It's not good, not good at all. No, so, it could be a a rough July, August, September with a lot of smoke in the air if it continues at this rate. I agree. But, yeah, I was in Nevada over the weekend, and things were dry what? down there. Oh, yeah, we were. What were you doing in Nevada? You take up gambling? I didn't know you to be a gambling man. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else in Nevada. Driving through the few towns we did, it was casinos everywhere. But we uh, uh -huh. Nevada has a season for shed hunting, and it opens on May oh. 1st. And so we went down to partake of opening weekend of the shed antler season in Nevada. Huh. And? Well, let's just say that there are more poachers when it comes to shed hunting than there are when it comes to hunting. So. Oh, really? Oh, uh, um. just, you know, they, they, they set the seasons to protect the wintering wildlife. And I get it. You know, yep. you don't want to go in there and harass them while they're on their critical winter range and while they're at their most vulnerable as far as, you know, winter beating them up and they're beat down from the rut and not eating all winter and... You know, so they put seasons so that they're basically, you know, it's still legal to go and hike around in there, but it's illegal to pick up antlers. Really? I, I don't even know how you would enforce that. And, you know, it's it's yeah. a law that punishes the honest people and benefits the dishonest people because, uh -huh. you know, we, we went to the first place and it's a place that I've been multiple times, started going there in the early 90s, and there's a lot of deer that winter in there and... We just didn't find very many deer antlers. And so I texted a, a guy that I knew that used to go in there and said, hey, did you happen to make it down this area this year for mule deer antlers? And he said, yeah, I was in there the third week of February. And I said, oh, were you seeing many deer? And he's like, not near as many because there were a couple guys in there on tracked ATVs side-by-sides cruising up and down every ridge in there pushing the deer all around and picking up antlers. Hmm. I'm like, oh, Dang. there's a season. They aren't supposed to be picking up antlers or pushing around deer. And so we ended up relocating and going to a place looking for elk antlers. 
and yeah. lucked into it, which you know is always nice. But we uh, we got into a draw where there had been probably eighteen or twenty bulls. Every tree was rubbed, winter rubs. There were tracks and sign. I mean, just on top of each other. And I found two antlers. One was a goofy, all it had was the first two eye guards, and then the beam had broken off in the velvet. And then the other one was an absolute giant 10-pound antler. Uh, And so I scour. I spent four hours gritting back and forth looking for the other side of that thing. And a bull that big, you usually don't have to go more than 200 yards to find the other side. And Mm -hmm. it was nowhere to be found. There were no boot prints in there, you know, from the previous couple of days but there were a ton of tire tracks in the mud just that had rutted up everything going in there in probably march and early april so huh so you're saying that it's uh the the voluntary compliance factor is missing uh, the voluntary compliance factor is hurting those who voluntarily yeah. voluntarily comply, and I mean it's just creating yeah. no competition for the people who are not going to abide by the law. And and honestly, I mean they don't have a reason to. There's no way to enforce it. Um, mm-hmm. If they got caught, they'd probably get a warning. And if yeah. they got a ticket, it'd probably be a hundred or a two hundred dollar ticket. And one of these antlers is worth two hundred bucks. So they go in there and find ten antlers, and it's like, you know what, I'll take a chance of getting caught. Yeah. Oh. Um I don't know. I always say that the problem with attorneys is ninety-nine percent of them give the other one percent a bad name. <laughs> are, are you saying that's the same case with the maybe not quite to that degree, but you know, the bad part about horn hunters is some percentage of them give the rest of them a bad name. Yeah, and I think it's just a small percentage. It's not nowhere okay. near as high as the attorneys, but <laughs> it doesn't when I, tell the, <laughs> when I tell that joke, people are usually like, no, you got that backwards. I'm like, no, with attorneys, no. 99% <laughs> of them give the rest a bad name. <laughs> Uh, uh, huh but we did good i found two fresh elk antlers and i took my youngest two uh, children down with me and they both found antlers i think jesse found around 20 deer antlers and sam found four Hmm. i think and i ended up with around 30 so it was it was a good good trip for sure yeah well, I was I had a report like that that I was doing something fun and interesting, but I've just been trying to get caught up on everything. I'm not very good at that either. Have you got officially fully banned from Facebook like uh, Donald Trump yet? Or no, not yet. But I'm about to. I you see our buddy uh, uh, James Martin of the Wild Country Comics? Did you see the Instagram? <laughs> I did. <laughs> cartoons that he made about me giving uh, Mark Zuckerberg a wedgie. Those yep. are so funny. Took him out to the woodshed and gave him a wedgie. <laughs> Folks, if you if you want to get a good laugh, go follow this guy. Uh, he's, his Instagram handle is Wild Country Comics. And some of your listener questions cause Corey and I to get in these discussions and James will occasionally make a cartoon about what we talk about on this podcast. So, <laughs> uh, no, I haven't been banned yet. I actually got control of my page back though. Nice. I don't know if I had control when we last talked. But, you did uh, not, no. 
So the thought that enters my head, though, is what if I didn't live in a rural state where it's much easier to know your U.S. senator and your U.S. senator's staff follows your platforms? Yeah. Say I lived in, you know, Illinois or Pennsylvania or California or Texas, some high population state. The odds of my Senate staff or the staff of my senators following my hunting platforms would be pretty slim when you're in a state of, you know, 20 million people versus 1 million. So yep. that's, uh, that's how I got it back is Senator John Tester's staff reached out to Facebook. And when you get an email from the person at Facebook whose title says government affairs leader, <laughs> that's like, man, I moved up the food chain there. This is, this is not, you know, some dude overseas in a, in a call center or, uh, you know, just yeah. the dark room of, of customer service complaints. So, but yeah, I got it back. I haven't posted anything on it though. So that's, that's another story, but it, yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing is stuff like that. So, and I've been watching, I've been hitting the refresh on my, my pages because uh, on the fishing game pages, because I think Utah is going to post their results here pretty soon. And that's, well, if you look at when they hit credit cards (laughs) in the previous years, you know, or, or anywhere from, five to 10 days away from that. So, and not that I'm going to draw. I mean, that's my odds are somewhere. Remember an engineer or in uh, calculus class, they always did one divided by infinity <laughs> for, for the closest you can get to zero. Yeah. So those are my odds. There is an actual chance, but it's about one divided by infinity. So. <laughs> And then I've been reading all of our listener questions that I want to get into. So I don't know. You're gonna indulge me here if I I'm gonna act like the the host of Jeopardy. And no, oh, really? I'm not. I'm not like Jones and for Aaron Rodgers' job. I mean, <laughs> I, as a Vikings fan, I really wish Aaron Rodgers would leave the Packers and go and be the host of Jeopardy. But oh well. So, but you don't have to a- answer them the way that you got to answer them. Oh, thank on goodness! Jeopardy. So, I, I think what's you were going gonna, on you were is give now, me the answer, and I had to figure out the question. Oh, I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, they gave me the question, so I wouldn't know the answer. That's what I'm going to ask you. Uh, but one thing I've noticed in all the listener questions of the last few weeks is now that tags have come out in Arizona, Montana, and New Mexico, it seems like there's a big shift from application season to research and planning season for folks. Uh, And I'd say I fall into that same category about this time of year. Sometime in May and June, I, I start spending a ton of time researching and e-scouting, assuming I have a tag to, to worry about. Um, but so some of these questions that I'm going to ask you are a, a little bit, uh, directed towards that. Um, and I, again, you know, the really vague questions, I've kind of tried to roll them up in, in, the the same question that someone else might've had that was a little more concise. So it's not a question of, 
hey, I just bought an elk tag. What do I do? I mean, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one to answer in an hour-long podcast. But that uh, is. So it seems like a bunch of people have Colorado as their fallback option uh, yeah. for the upcoming year. Um, so this person asked, do you have any tips for a solo archery elk hunt in southwest Colorado in early September. So it sounds like they're going the first part of season. And oh, by the way, I'm a, a whitetail hunter from the Midwest. Not that maybe that does, maybe that doesn't matter. And they didn't say whether they have a lot of elk hunting experience or none. Um, so this it doesn't necessarily have to be southwest Colorado unless you want to go that far into it. But yeah, I'm, I'm so here's the other thing. For today, Corey, I'm keeping you to two pe- two. What are the two best tips that you could give somebody? Oh, man. So now I have oh, to I prioritize. I should have to prioritize yeah, I my answers. Yeah, I should have sent these questions to you in advance, but oh, I don't I can, think... I can the, make the stuff Jeopardy up on the fly just as easy as I can. <laughs> there you go. See, I've taught you well, making it That's up. Right. So, uh, so anything for, come to mind? Yeah, first thing that comes to mind is, and, and I'm going to assume a little bit here, but assuming that this is a Midwestern whitetail hunter who might not have very much elk hunting experience. And obviously there are mm-hmm. several Midwest and Eastern whitetail hunters who have a lot of elk experience. But if you don't yeah. have a lot of experience, going to Southwest Colorado early September by yourself is about the the hardest lineup you could come up with to achieve <laughs> success. That's just Southwest Colorado is rugged country. Early yes. September is hot sometimes in in some places in southwest Colorado, um, elk might not be quite as active or as vocal. And then going by yourself, you know, just just going and hunting by yourself is a challenge. You get an elk down in southwest Colorado in early September by yourself, and you could you've got a lot of a lot of challenges to overcome there. So that's that's the first thing that comes yeah. to mind is. Do you not have any friends that want to go with you? Or that, I mean, that's just find no, somebody, sure. find the cashier down at the local grocery station that has a week's vacation yeah. and take him with you. You know, just company and someone to be there. But that that would be my first thing is if you're mm-hmm. going without a lot of experience that time of year in that location, I would definitely try to have a, a partner of some kind with me. Um <laughs> the other thing is just if you're going to go by yourself, be sure you're prepared for all of the the challenges that you're going to face. And, you know, yeah. from the rugged country, uh, be making sure you're in shape and ready to tackle some of that. And then making sure you're prepared for success because the last thing you want to do is get four or five miles back in somewhere by yourself and shoot an elk and find out that it's hot early September and you've got a lot of days of packing elk meat ahead of you, just making sure you're knowledgeable and, and ready to tackle that. And it's not, it's not impossible by any means, but it's definitely a intimidating task if you've not had a lot of experience there. Yeah, very daunting. Uh, two things that come to mind for me, uh, Southwest Colorado, it is steep if you if someone hasn't been there 
not only is it steep, but it's high elevation. So when someone says they're coming from the Midwest, I'm thinking, okay, you're probably coming from someplace less than 2,000 feet of elevation. And you're coming to the highest plateau, the you know Southwest Colorado, whether you're in the San Juans or wherever, you, you, you're probably going to be hunting elk above 11,000 feet that time of year. Altitude sickness yeah. and acclimation to prevent altitude sickness is one of the things that I'm thinking about for for this person. It uh, it's just <laughs> I've I've been there. I mean, I I shot an elk in last year in October. I shot it. I think October 10th. I was at just under 12,000 feet. And if I didn't have four llamas, I would not have shot that thing. It's like I'm not shooting that thing in yeah. here. Uh, so you think about even a month sooner in archery season, they probably would have been up even higher than where I was at. And, uh, I could, man, I could see a lot of challenges coming from that. I mean, bravo for the, for the person being interested in doing it. Uh, love the gumption, just trying to add a little bit of reality to it. The other thing, whenever we get these questions about locations, general locations, because sometimes <laughs> we get questions specific to a unit and Corey and I kind of white out or black out the unit and we go to a general area because we don't want to <laughs> you know, get that precise. But Southwest Colorado, if you look at the herd trends over the last five to eight years, they're going down. And so for me, I'm always looking at, do I want to hunt in a spot where the trends are going down? I at least want it stable or find an area where the trends are going upwards. So uh, that's that's what comes to mind for me. I don't know that there's any specific solo tips, but I'm going to ask you a, a question of my own uh, spinning off from that. When he says solo, um, I know you and Donnie hunt together a lot and you're super effective. Do you ever go out solo or do you, is the effectiveness of having a partner that much better that you'd stay at home and cut firewood until you can have someone who can go with you? <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, there's benefits both ways. I think for me, the benefit of going solo is just the mental decompression, um, just getting out there and not uh, feeling the pressure to be successful. Because when you're hunting with a partner, you know, not only are you concerned about your success, but you're concerned about theirs. And so there is some mm -hmm. added responsibility uh, when you when you hunt with a good hunting partner. And I, it's so important to make that distinction. They're, they're hunting partners. They hunt together, but they're both trying to fill their own goals and they're not working together as a team. And then there are hunting partners that work together as a team. And it's night and day difference, both in terms of enjoyment and success. But, uh, right. you know, I, it, it does add some responsibility there that when we're hunting together, if I'm hunting with Donnie or anybody else, I feel you know, responsible to contribute to their success. And so that means no chance of sleeping in. I'm going to push as hard as I can every minute of daylight. Uh, I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't sleep in. No, try not to. 
Somebody came up, oh, in Texas. I was down in Texas a couple weeks ago for uh, doing a presentation for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation at the Total Archery Challenge. And uh-huh. somebody said, in watching your videos on YouTube, I can tell that you don't have a desire to get up early and get out. You know, you're okay hunting the mid-morning and late morning. I'm like, what videos did you watch? Because <laughs> Have him call me. <laughs> I, it might have been daylight a time or two, but we're usually getting after it pretty good. We're into elk bugles if we can be by daylight so uh, uh, but yeah i mean wow. it's there there is some extra responsibility and, and if i hunt by myself mm-hmm. uh it's usually because donnie has another uh responsibility or my kiddos are in school and i'm out scouting for them uh, i just yeah. i don't get too serious about hunting by myself anymore and if i do it's i love it because i can go out there and just sit on a mountain and listen for bugles and basically do more scouting than hunting and it's a lot more relaxed and enjoyable okay so what was so, your question <laughs> that, that, that was it okay do you, do you prefer to hunt do you ever hunt solo or would you rather just wait until donnie or you're one of your kids or you know someone else yeah. can go with you but this thing goes to the next kind of taking it one step further do you ever do it with one caller and two shooters or two callers and one shooter Ah, uh, yeah, we have. Mm. I oh, don't. Yeah? I don't prefer to. Okay. It just you know anytime the, the ideal is one shooter, one cameraman with the shooter, and one caller back behind, and that's you know okay. maybe not even ideal because now you have a cameraman in there that definitely adds some complexity. Right. But um, in the situations that we're in, that is when you get another person in our in our style of hunting that adds four people to the mix yep. and anytime you have two people out front the shooters it just it complicates the communication between the shooter and the caller and the caller okay. doesn't know now it's harder to keep track of where both of them are so he's trying to move around to call the elk in uh, it, it adds a little, a certain level of competition between the two shooters because they're each wanting to get the shot and they might end up moving when they shouldn't. They might end up trying to, um, cut the other shooter off to get in a better setup when they, where they think the bull's coming in. It just, it adds some, some things that are not beneficial to the setup. And then if you have oh. two callers and one shooter, uh, again, it's that communication thing. And I just, you know, for me and Donnie especially, but anytime there's a, a shooter and a caller, whether I'm the shooter or the caller, I'm communicating with the other person. And it might not be a direct, you know, hand signal, sign language communication, but we at least uh, are able to communicate enough to know, okay, we need to move forward. We need to drop back. We need to get aggressive. You know, just little things that when you had two callers, uh, it can it can complicate things. Plus, you know, one caller is thinking, okay, I've got a handle on this. This is what I feel we need to do to get this bull to come in. And the other callers over there screaming bugles out. It just, uh, it takes away yeah. from that true tight team bond that, that we try to have. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Uh, the more the merrier doesn't necessarily apply. Not yeah, until we start packing elk. elk. <laughs> <laughs> we start packing, and all of a sudden, a couple of couple extra callers is okay. Yeah. Um, in your university course, you're updating some of this stuff with some of these setups. 
Uh, or is that just on your YouTube channel? Where no, we're uh, so on YouTube. A couple of years ago, we started doing what we call in the zone, which we basically mm-hmm. take a, an actual elk hunting scenario, and you know, it's it's something that we've filmed in the past. But then we go in and we we use three D imaging and motion graphics to show where we were, where the elk was, and to kind of show what the thermals are doing, what the terrain is like from a bird's eye view and really break down these scenarios in, in specific situations. Uh, and we started adding the new ones to the, the online course. So members of the University of Elk Hunting online course get to see uh, some of the new exclusive ones that aren't being shown anywhere else. Okay. So if, we, if I promote your course, because Mr. Modesty there never does, uh, if you go, if you so, when you draw your tag this year, and you want some really good information, regardless of what your experience level is, go out to Corey's course and use promo code Elk Talk. Right? I got that right. You got and that you're going to give right. them a discount. Yep, twenty dollars oh, off. Man, all right, huh? You know, I don't care what people say. I'm I'm still okay at ten in the ten thirty in the morning. I'm you know. I'm I'm awake. I I had some people here this morning for a meeting, and they're like, "Randy, you look really tired." I'm like, I don't know if that's a comment, complaint, criticism, or a compliment. No, like, oh well. so we got that right. Promo code Elk Talk for University of Elk Hunting course. Save twenty bucks or something yeah. like that, right? And it's you know it goes into and learn a lot. Well. There's a lot of information that's shared there, the learning part, you know, that's yeah. that's individualistic. And that's, yep. uh, I'm, I'm not a good learner. I, I learn the hard way, so. Because everyone, all of your in-the-zone clips, I can look at that and say, been there. Oh, that's why I screwed that up. Oh, <laughs> ah, okay, Randy, don't do that again. Do what Corey did. <laughs> well, do what Donnie it's, did. It's always so uh, much easier, and some of them are failures. I mean, we go through and, and look at, right. okay, this one didn't work out. Here's why. You know, we moved up to here. The thermals are doing this. We should have known that we couldn't get up to here because it was going to pull our thermals up to where the elk was. We should have went around this way. Um, but it's it's just amazing what you can do, you know, in the moment. Sometimes it's difficult, but when you get done looking back and then taking, yeah. you know, 3D imaging where we can see the bench, we can see the brush thicket, we can see where the ridge breaks over, and then we can put a little silhouette of an elk on the ridge where he's coming down and the silhouette of where the shooter and the collar are at. And you can really start to visualize through those illustrations uh, what the situation's like, what you need to do, but more importantly, why you need to do it so that when it happens, when you're out in the woods, it kind of just clicks a little bit faster. Yeah. Well, I hope folks will go check that out. Um, This one uh, listener said, man, I was all excited. I drew this Montana multi-unit archery tag, uh, which if you look in the regs in Montana, there's quite a few central, eastern units where if you draw the archery tag, whether you're a resident or non-resident, it gives you a chance to hunt multiple units. In some respects, not too much different than the Wyoming general tag or the Colorado over-the-counter tags. And so he said, I was all excited and still I got to looking at how much terrain, how many places I could go. And now I'm more 
bewildered than I am excited. Where would you start as far as selecting which of these many units to hunt in? <laughs> this reminds me of all the emails and messages we get. I'm not asking for a specific trailhead, but do you have a drainage or a creek <laughs> name that I could start hunting at? And I know he, he obviously yeah. stayed away from asking that, but... No, and yeah. it's, you know, I, yeah. I think that's, for me, that's the beauty of Go Hunt and going to filtering 2.0 in the Insider. Uh, you can look at individual statistics for individual units, and it's just yep. super helpful to do that. And, you know, like like we've talked, there are a few things that I look for. Uh, access is a big part, especially, you know, you get to yep. central and eastern Montana. There's a lot of private land from what I understand. Uh, so access yep, is going to is. be a, a big thing I'm looking at. Is it 20% public land or is it 90% public land? Uh, but more importantly, I'm probably looking at bull to cow ratios, uh, harvest success percentages, yep. uh, some yep. of those things. So you can go into to filtering 2.0 and you can plug in, I want a unit that gives me 30% success rate in that unit. And I want it to be 75% public land or more. And it's going to spit out which units within that area you have to hunt meet that criteria. And then from there, you can browse through them. You can get an idea for what the land looks like. You can get an idea of uh, what the trophy potential, if that's important. You can get an idea of the bull to cow ratio. And so you can really narrow things down. And it's not like everybody's looking for the same thing. You know, I, I might for a certain hunt right. want trophy potential. I might say I want to go where there's 320 plus bulls potential. Whereas somebody else might want a high bull to cow ratio or a lot of public land. And so the nice thing about it is it's not going to send everybody to the same place. It's going to factor right. everything in based on the input that you put in, what's important for the hunt, and spit out the those units. And so that's, for me, that would be my very first thing is go there and it's probably going to narrow it down to just two or three specific units. From there, you know, you can... You can get in and do some e-scouting based on that. And it really, it just, it is overwhelming and it's daunting to take something so general like that. You know, you look at a general tag in Wyoming or the uh, general license in Montana and it's like, well, I can hunt the whole west side of the state or I can hunt all of this area. How do I narrow yeah. it down from there? And it's, there are tools that, that help you do that for sure. Yeah, and I, I approach it the same way. I just say, all right, this tag that he's talking about, treat it as one unit and then go and, and use those exact tools about harvest rates, da-da-da, and see which of the units within this region, or, you know, Wyoming is a great example, or this is how I also pick my over-the-counter units in Colorado. What are the criteria I'm looking for? And for me, I want to quickly get to the elimination of places that don't interest me. So if all of a sudden the map clears away and you're down to two units or three units, it's like, okay, let me focus on those and let me start drilling down even deeper and do my e-scouting from there. So yep. I, I can see, I guess, where some people uh, are, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but just struggling or, or pondering where do i start uh <laughs> i 
I, I can see where that would be the situation. But hey, did, speaking of Gohan, did you uh, you see that they released the insiders got access to the iOS version of the what do you, what do you call it, mobile maps? Yep. No, I did. I uh, used it in Nevada this last weekend. Pretty okay. slick. Well, I'm a Droid user. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it? All right. So I'm a droid user, so they've told me, you got to wait four weeks, Randy. So it's life. I'm I, I'm slow at so many things. And my technology curve isn't even a curve, Corey. My it's technology curve curves so slowly, it, it looks like a straight line. <laughs> but no, you, so, uh, and uh if you become an insider and use promo code ALKTALK, they'll give you a $50 uh, card in the uh, gift card in their gear shop. But here's what, here's why it's important. I mean, all the insider stuff we talked about now, I mean, last year they came out with desktop maps, 3d maps. Now you get the mobile version and you and I being lucky, we get to see what's in store for the mobile version in the next couple of months. And, yep. uh, should be pretty exciting for people. Well, and it's just, it's it's so awesome that I get to use it now for shed hunting and get familiar with it and uh-huh. see how powerful it is because I do a ton of e-scouting for shed hunting. And, you know, we know about the approximate, yeah, we know approximately no the elevations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you know, the approximate elevations where they're going to be, they're going to be hanging out on south slope south facing slope so i can jump into the 3d desktop version of maps and pick out places that look good and then i can put a a pin there and it shows up on my ios mobile app and so now i have 3d and topo and in the field offline maps and everything all in one place and then when you start talking about all this other stuff like we just been talking about with insider and filtering 2.0 and draw odds all on the same platform it really is it's pretty pretty slick cool. what, what do you say slicker than deer so, guts on a doorknob slicker than deer guts on a doorknob That's... is what grandpa used to say <laughs> uh so you brought up something. I wrote a note here. I forgot to ask it, but before we get too far down the path, I'd never heard this before until you said it. Winter rubs. What the yeah. heck is a winter rub? Well, so there there are three kinds of rubs that elk, bull elk, make with their antlers. And the first one is mm-hmm. when they remove the velvet. And that's usually done in yep. what I call the bull's bedroom they're, they've split up from the from the bachelor group. They're solo. It's right before they go looking for cows. So we're talking, you know, mid-August through the 1st of September, somewhere in there. Those bulls are typically, especially the bigger bulls, they move off by themselves. They're irritable. They're easily agitated, but they're not ready to go looking for cows. So they just find this little bench. It's dark. It's usually on a north face. It's got feed and water close by, and they are just there getting ready for the rut. And the first thing they do is rub their velvet off. And so you're going to find a a little patch where they've spent that week or two, and there might be 30 or 40 rubs within sight, like just every tree in there looks rubbed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked in the past that if you're archery hunting the middle of September and you come across something like that, you're like, oh, yeah, I am in the right place. But that bull might be 10 miles away because he spent the pre-rut there 
and then he moved looking for the for the cows once the rut started kicking in. And so being able to differentiate between a rut rub and a pre-rut rub is important. And a rut rub is just, you know, the bulls rake their antlers to display dominance while they are either establishing harems or while they have their harems. Uh, they'll do that to, to display their dominance to another bull. And, you know, they aren't going to rake every tree on a ridge. They're going to rake a tree as the cows are feeding by the meadow in the morning and then on the way up there when they get their bedding area, they'll rake a tree, but you aren't going to find that concentration like you do in, in pre-rut rubs. And then the winter rubs are important mm -hmm. for us shed hunters because when we're trying to find elk, sometimes, you know, like the first of May, Nevada's shed season opens the first of May. When you get to these areas where they dropped antlers, the elk are no longer there. So it's not like you can go and look for bull elk that have lost their antlers already the 1st of May because they're going to be a couple thousand feet in elevation difference, maybe several miles if they migrate back to their summer range. So it's important to know what sign to look for to say, okay, the bulls were here at the time they were dropping their antlers. And one of the most important things that I look for is a winter rub. And they will rub their antlers uh, just before they start shedding them. And I don't know if it's because they get itchy and they're trying to get them off, but you will find in an area where the bulls are concentrated in like February and March, there will be multiple trees that are rubbed. And you can tell they're fresh because there's still green limbs on the ground and they aren't from the fall before uh, where the limbs would be dead. And so uh, that's that's one of the... Wow. Primary signs I look for when I'm going through an area to say, were the bulls here before they dropped their antlers? Because obviously if there's rubs, they had their antlers on and it really helps put some pieces together uh, for shed hunting. I that I see folks, you learn something new every day. I had <laughs> no idea. But I'm I'm not a shed antler guy, uh horn hunter. So I've never had cause to think about that. I had no idea that they rub just before they're getting ready to, to drop. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, wow. so I get excited when I start seeing fresh rubs in April because I know the elk, elk had their antlers when they made the rubs and they probably don't have them right now. So all I have to do is either figure out where they are right now and connect the dot between that rub and where they are. Or, I mean, we found sheds at a rubbed tree, like they've rubbed their antler off on a tree and... Mm -hmm. It's uh, not uncommon. Hmm. So this is completely side note to this. Somebody wrote, and this is your Nevada shed antler. They're following the same line here. Some guy said that he shot an elk in Nevada that had a broken fourth point. And he said, does Corey have a shed antler I could get a 19 to 20 inch G4 off from? <laughs> so there, I put you on the spot. Have you ever had something repaired at a taxidermist? I haven't. Um, I haven't. And I just, my first thought is, man, those antlers are all so unique that I think it would be really tough to match mm. up. You know, just mass, length, even the the uh, features on the antler, you know, the veins and the grooves and the knobs and coloring and everything. It would just be yeah. so hard. I would almost think it would be easier to to build an antler from scratch using some of the compounds they use to fix antlers and do taxidermy. Yeah, I've, I've never done that. So, well, there we answered the question. <laughs> I, I think that was a polite way of saying, no, I keep my I, shed antlers. Well, I, actually, the antler buyer's coming today to buy our 
antlers. And so Ooh. I do sell them, but I probably don't have anything that would match what he was looking for. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't buy that. I saw some of the pictures. I saw you. I So for people who don't know, Corey called me and told me the story just about drowning in a river. <laughs> about, I don't know, when was that? Two weeks ago when you uh, called me? Yeah, it was and I, two weeks ago. And I said, Corey, this is why you and I have such differences of risk assessment. This is why we don't hunt together that much. <laughs> so you got to practice your dog paddling techniques to keep you from going over the waterfalls by the sounds of it. Well, when you say I almost drowned, that's that's probably a little bit of a stretch because okay. I never okay. Did felt you get, was, almost get hypothermia then. Well, I was going to say I never felt like my life was in danger. There were a few times where my heart rate got up and I started breathing a little faster. <laughs> uh, just realizing I had to work a little harder than I was to to make it across. But we've got a spot where we like to uh, to go across this creek that typically. It's really wide, really slow, and really deep right there. And so I've always uh-huh. thought that's the, the good way to get across that's going to be, we don't have rafts or anything, and it's a long hike in there, so it's not like you want to carry a bunch of weight. But I thought, I have two float tubes, and Tyler has a set of waders, and I have a set of waders. Mm-hmm. We could pack float tubes and waders in there and some fins and just kick across the slow part where it's deep and get to the other side and then shed hunt the other side where not very many other people are going to be willing to go. So everything was good until I found my waders the night before and my son had used them. These are fishing, you know, neoprene fishing waders. My son had used them for waterfowl hunting and they had about six holes in them. Mm -hmm. So I went and got some aqua seal and patched (laughs) all of those holes and the aqua seal worked great. So rolled them up, Got down there, inflated our float tubes, put on the waders. Tyler climbed in. He's like, oh, these float tubes aren't overly stable. Not to mention spring runoff had occurred, and now our slow spot was moving pretty swiftly. It was still a wide, deep spot, but now it was moving. There was a good current through it. And just below this (laughs) wide spot is some Class three rapids. Big rapids, uh, kind of rapids you don't want to go down in a float tube or in a raft if you don't have experience <laughs> in a raft. So we have a, a finite uh, amount of space to kick ourselves across and make it to the other side before the current pulls us into the rapids. And it's all, you know, we've got it planned out. We aren't, aren't too worried. So Tyler sits in the water and in his waders. I climb in there in mine, and immediately I sit down in the seat of the float tube and water starts running down inside my waders. So I jump back out at this point. My socks and my pants are wet. So I just left, you know, socks and pants on, put the waders on over it, and got looking, and one of the seams up the back of the leg was completely blown out. So we had a patch kit we put on there. It wouldn't stick to the inside of the waders. We tried Luco tape. We tried everything. And eventually I realized these waders are shot, but I've got to get across this thing, and there's no way I'm yeah, the, dangling the my weight. of brown gold. Oh, it's, we've got to do it. It's like the gold <laughs> rush back in the old days. They're willing to take chances to get across to find that gold. And so, so the engineer in me, my, my biggest fear was getting cold going across there. Yeah. And the waiter's filling up with water and 
me having to jump off the float tube because I can't make it across the current and getting sucked to the bottom of the river and going down the rapids. So I yeah. devised a plan. I wanted to wear the waders to keep me warm, but then I just took a knife and cut the feet off of the waders so that the water that ran down from the back <laughs> of the leg would run all the way through and wouldn't weigh me down. So I had my fins set for my my waders with the booties. When I cut the booties off, I didn't readjust the fins. And when I put them on my bare skin, it felt like, oh, these things are sticking good. They're nice and solid. So Tyler went across first. Mm -hmm. He made it. And he's like, that current's pretty good. You know, you got to kick pretty hard with the fins to push through the current to make it over to the slack water on the other side. And I said, no problem. So I put in, pushed off with my, my fins. And my first kick with both feet, the fins fell off and floated to the bottom of the river. <laughs> and I'm committed at this point. So I'm kicking with everything I have with my little size 11 and a half feet. And I'm not going anywhere other than down the current. And so I pulled my pack. You know, we have our great big loaded backpacks. We're going for an overnight adventure. So we have those on our laps, basically, in these float tubes, I just leaned back, pulled my pack on my chest, and started using my arms and my feet and kicked like crazy and uh, made it across. <laughs> but not before <laughs> my feet had turned completely bright red from being exposed to the winter runoff for about two and a half minutes. And yeah. Yeah. Well, but we made it. That's... Uh... You know, the Norman McLean wrote a book one time, and a line in there says, we were too uh, foolish to know that we owed the world the tragedy. <laughs> you and... You, a river you, runs through it. You guys owed the... Yeah, you guys owed the world the tragedy there. No, That's, we... Uh, I, I can't believe that you're an adult and you take those kind of risks. So it, it gets better. We, uh, we went shed hunting. We spent two days shed hunting and loaded up with some sheds. And our goal was to make it back to the river before dark, knowing that we had to shuttle the sheds back and forth across and probably take a couple trips. And so I'm, I'm thinking, I don't have fins, so it's going to be a lot more work. These antlers don't just lay on your chest like a backpack does. We're going to have to figure out a way to bundle them up. So we start hiking out and not realizing loaded down, it's taken us longer to get out and we make it back to the, the creek crossing at dark. And so here's where I, I deserve some credit because I told Tyler, there's no way we're making it across this in the dark with antlers. We've got to leave the antlers. And so we did, we've, we stashed the antlers. We uh, jumped in the river on our float tubes with my, cut up waders, but I found two pieces of bark off of a tree that uh, were about 18 inches long and probably eight inches wide, and I held on to the back of them and used them as little hand oars. Paddles? Little paddles. <laughs> and they worked phenomenal. I made, it, I made it across faster than Tyler using his fins. So huh. we got across, hiked wow. out, we got back home about 1.30 in the morning, and then uh, that's what prompted the call to you to see if you might have a solution to get us across that raging body of water that I wasn't comfortable going back across on a flute tube. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what was that solution? Well, you just I, happened. I'm, I'm looking for the... <laughs> I'm looking for the text message that you sent me. Here. Uh, where was 
does this. It, it was so funny. I'm like, uh, something not good. Something, where is this? It was so funny. I'm like, is this guy, I gave him credit for being so smart. And look at this. Uh, um, I've got it here it, if you want Something it. about, yeah, well, anyhow. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. There, here's the first text. It's a picture of this big mound of antlers. Are you still feeling full of energy and motivation? I sure could use some help packing these out. My response is full of energy? Question mark. What energy? Isn't that what Donnie's for? And you say, no, I'm saving Donnie's energy for September. And then I'd say, well, the easy answer is just hang them in the trees. And uh, then... Finally, you get to the point. You say, <laughs> have you ever used an alpaca raft before? And I say, oh, yeah, I've got four of them. And then we go into which model and everything. And finally, we, we get through, we burn enough Verizon time. You say, can I just call you about this? <laughs> so and, so uh, I did, and I got a full education see. on alpaca rafts. And... Uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, they were I shot slick. a little video for you. I sent that to you. Yeah. And you didn't drown. I was like, you know what? I am so busy, but I got to get this overnighted to Corey because that goofball, he'll be over there with his little armbands that you see the little kids in the kiddie pool trying to figure out a way if I don't get him something to save his life. <laughs> so how'd it work? It worked incredible. So we got the uh, the forager, I think, is the one that you had that you sent me. And yeah. it weighs 14 pounds, but it'll hold mm-hmm. like a thousand pounds or something. A so thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah, it was it was enough for me and Tyler to get across. So we got there, and you know, it's always learning experience. There are baffles on the mm-hmm. inlets that you close, so they'll let yep. air in, but not let air out. And so we're using the little bag yep. to fill these. And as I'm getting close to the end, I'm pushing the bag down, and when I let up, the air pushes back into the bag. And I'm like, there is no way that we can get these full. And then I took it. I said, there's got to be a baffle. So I took it off and twisted it, and yeah, it worked great then. I could fill it with air, and no air came out. But we're sitting on the bank, and it's 60, 62 degrees out, and we fill them with air. And then we go jump in the raft in the 32.3-degree water, and we get about 10 feet out, and the raft is only about half full of air now. And yeah. so that was our first first <laughs> lesson is, hey, you've got to put it in the water and let it acclimate and cool down, let the air cool, right. and then top it off with some air. Because Tyler's a tall guy, yeah. and he, he's a prof- he was a professional bull rider, so you would anticipate that he's pretty good at staying in the center of something and keeping things balanced. No, he's flailing around in the back thinking we're going to crash and tip, and so he about tipped us over as we got to the other side but there was enough air to keep us keep us up right there and uh, so we got across just fine i did bring some really cheap oars that that i mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure they were the ones you buy at walgreens with the intex like the nine dollar uh, raft that yeah. isn't even safe for a kiddie pool uh so yeah. that was flexing on us a little bit, and it would actually, if I dug in too hard, the actual paddle itself would bend in half. Uh, so <laughs> another lesson learned there, but we made it across. 
we we uh, got back. <laughs> we, I was going to say, the reason that I wanted this story to be told is it shows a couple things. That elk hunters are kind of crazy in their pursuit, and then those of them that aspire to be horn hunters take it even to a higher level where risk analysis and risk management goes out the window. See, but, but I, I think <laughs> that... I I didn't take risk. I came back and got a safe raft. You know, obviously there are things that we learn as we go through this process that make it even safer for the next time. Which when we came back across, it was yeah, awesome. And, so we, uh, I, I, I jumped said, in there. You want me to send you some paddles? I told you I had the world's best paddles, right? And you, you said, did. "Oh no, uh-uh, I got some paddles." <laughs> Right. And I actually had so anyhow, paddles. So I was I was just trying to save weight and take the lightweight paddles. But now we uh, we made it across mm. just fine. We uh, ended up shed hunting that day and didn't find too much, but we did find a little bit. And we uh, we got back to the bank and put extra air in the raft. I actually got in and paddled around for a little bit and then pulled back to the shore and put more air in just to make sure that it sealed all the way up and filled all the way up. We uh, stacked a bunch of antlers. We tied them all, bundled them all so they were tines up so there was no chance of puncturing the raft. And I made two trips across with uh, backpacks and antlers and then went back over and picked up Tyler and came back and we hiked out of there. My pack was 98 pounds and Tyler's was somewhere approaching that on the pack out. Uh, which was awesome. It's always mm. fun to come out from a shed hunt loaded down. But I am uh, I'm in the market for Tyler and I are both going to buy alpaca rafts now after using them and realize they actually make one that's under ten pounds. It's like six or seven pounds right. that uh, will be perfect yep. for us. We'll each have one. We It'll can hold carry five hundred pounds exactly. So yeah. whole new world. So it's you want to like save those- some money when you. When- yeah, no, talk, talk to me about saving money first. <laughs> yeah, because I don't pay full retail. I mean, I, I just, I, I refuse to pay full retail. And I don't want our listeners to pay full retail. So that's why we have promo codes for everything. And uh, Alpaca Raft has a promo code, Randy, that you'll save 10%. Well, if you go I'm, use it. I'm on their website last right year, now. Last year, the promo code was... Are you? Okay. Last year, the promo code was Randy2020. And I don't know what they did this year. I got a couple emails saying, hey, your promo code isn't working. But then they told me, oh, we got it straightened out. Sorry about that. Uh, But if for some reason the promo code doesn't work, call them and say, hey, uh, I'm trying to use Randy's promo code because he doesn't want me to pay retail. (laughs) And Thor and the crew down there at Alpaca Rafts, such great people. Uh, he grew up in Alaska, and I had him on my other podcast, the Hunt Talk Radio podcast, and he's telling the story about growing up there and hunting sheep and kind of taking it for granted that everybody does this. <laughs> like, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, well, they were certainly, certainly made... Yeah, they were made for what we do. Uh, it's going to open up. It's just like when you told me about llamas. And Bo Beatty and his llamas, it just opened up new areas for us to go and hunt in. And now these alpaca rafts, it's, yeah. our, our minds were spinning. We could go here. We could take these here. Man, we could get across rivers. We could do this. We could go up and, and find antlers and then float down a river with them. I mean, it just, we're, uh, yeah. doors are open. 
Yeah, they're remarkably seaworthy. I, I mean, I've floated them around the rivers here, even in high water, and they're they're impressive. Yeah, I haven't hauled an elk out in one of them, but I'm gonna I'm trying to figure that out. I think I told you my story of what my plan is for the destination elk hunt you're having me do this fall. Yeah, but I'm bringing llamas and an alpaca raft. How cool is that? Huh? That is llamas and I'm, alpaca. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Yeah, I, I hope the llamas don't mind carrying an alpaca raft. <laughs> maybe they have a, a a grudge there. Not sure, but uh, anyhow, I, I, let's that 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 story. I so the the value of that story is to show that Corey's pursuit of antlers is quite uh, takes him to some places that the safe accountant guy would never go. I'd be like, you know, call me when you need me. I'll be uh, I'll be at the at the trailhead to drive you home with, you know, coffee and donuts or something. But, uh, <laughs> and that's well, all the more reason to put them in trees. So, well, I I actually look for antlers in trees now, knowing that you do that. So it's it's opened my uh, yeah. avenues for finding antlers in places other than on the ground. But you know, going into this area. We were less than a mile into our hike after we crossed the creek, and there was a set of antlers, probably a 310, 320-inch uh, bull, had dropped his antlers right next to the trail probably four years ago, and they were still laying there. Whoa. So it just... it. Shows well, that tells me you no one's been there. Exactly. Yeah, and so a little raft like this opens up areas where nobody else can go or is willing to go or wants to go or thinks about going and it just separates us that much more from competition whether it's antler hunting or elk hunting or whatever it is yep whatever it is so somebody lucked out and drew the first archery season in new mexico in a wilderness area and the question is uh uh, well, there's a lot of pieces to the question, but again, we're going to keep it to two pieces of advice. Where would you start with your e-scouting? Any thoughts to that? I know where I start. Very first place I start is what season. So he already answered that question. He's going the first week of of uh, September or the first season of September. So I would look at what are the days I'm going. Am I going the first or am i going to go the last part because i think that season runs till the 14th or 15th something like that uh so are you going to go the later part of that first season that would put you there say the 8th through the 14th or something and uh that's the first question i always ask myself when i'm e-scouting is what season am i hunting and so if he picked that date i just suggested he'd be in that transition period it's a really rapid transition from pre-rut to peak rut and a lot is happening on the landscape in that week the elk are going from mm, i'm pretty interested but i'm not quite that interested to hold my beer and watch this uh so that's the first thing i i would look at and then knowing that it is such a drought year in the southwest this year arizona nevada new mexico they i've been talking to folks down in those states and it's as much as you were saying how dry it is in idaho they are uh 
there ha- this is a once in 25, could be once in a 50-year drought if they don't start getting some moisture. So in my e-scouting, that's the other thing I'd be looking at is how does lack of moisture, which oftentimes results in lack of food or scarcity of food and lack of water on the landscape, how does that allow me to find out probably in higher densities when I do find them, even though they're not as dispersed across the landscape, where are those places are going to be in the higher densities under these conditions? So that's, that's where I would start with an e-scouting plan for that hunt that he described. Did you add anything to it? That's exactly what I would have said. You know, what are the elk's needs, which is what you, I, I think one of the, the most important things that I've learned from you about elk hunting is recognizing the elk's needs in different seasons and different times of years. And, you know, so that's that's one of the first things that I ask myself is what season am I hunting? What time of year am I hunting? And what are their needs? And you talked about that transition from pre-rut to peak rut. So they're going from, uh, in New Mexico especially, uh, a priority of water probably and feed to that still being a priority, but now adding the, the upcoming rut there. So if you're going to hunt the first part of that season, feed and water are going to be most important. The second part is going to start transitioning into maybe some more calling, uh, finding the cows, and the bulls are going to be showing up with the cows. But even at that, I think water is going to be the, the critical factor. And so finding sources of water that on a dry year are still going to provide water would be probably the first thing that I look for in that area and making sure that I have those areas clearly marked and identified and then verifying when I get there which ones still have water and focusing around those areas. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. That's like the first answer we've ever given that where we kind of have the same same answer <laughs> to the same question. <laughs> Take that for what it's I'm worth. I'm not sure about those two. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's up with those guys? They finally decided that they could agree on something. But, hmm. <clears throat> well, that's... Uh, that's good. That's helpful. So, well, without keeping people for their whole day, do you, we got two more questions. One of them is how much our email had or how many emails we got. I don't know what brought this up, but people talking about marital harmony and hunting. Did we say or do something in the last couple podcasts that got people worked up about this or what's the deal i don't remember specifically i think uh i don't either people look at you and Maybe i just and coincidence yeah and the, and the lives that we get to live and the amount of time we get to spend in the field and they probably think how do they do it you know obviously they don't have a job and <laughs> but more importantly on the home front how do they get away with it yeah i that's something we want to even talk about, or is that a whole different podcast? <laughs> that might be. I a mean, podcast. On, on my podcast, yeah, I, I did. It, it got into so much depth. I did two episodes about marital advice. Yeah, one where you the gave hunter. the advice, and, and one the next podcast. one, the next one where you begged forgiveness from your wife for the things you said in the first one. Is Pretty that, much, yeah, yeah. yeah. First episode, I had some guys on there who, <laughs> when you heard when I was hearing their answers, I'm like, oh no. Don't say that. 
I can't edit that out. That's gold, but you're going to pay, buddy. <laughs> and then the next episode was women, wives, who some of them hunt and some of them don't. Uh, they've all tried it. Uh, but they were providing responses or rebuttals to the responses <laughs> we got on the first podcast. It's and people comedy, can find yeah. that on uh, Hunt Talk Radio podcast. Yeah, I can't remember like episodes. Uh, I don't know in the late uh, episode number, high eighties, maybe even the low one hundreds. Uh, I should know, but I don't. But uh, it's uh, it's always interesting, and I know we can joke about it, but I can say for me. Uh, and I always caution that I hate giving marital advice like I know what I'm talking about because what if my wife someday says, you know, buddy, uh, you you were uh, you're welcome here. Pack it up and get out of town. So you run that risk of acting like you know what you're talking about, but maybe you don't. Uh, <laughs> so I qualify this as I <clears throat> in the CPA world. The first thing this big national firm taught me the first training class I went to in Chicago, they said, remember, if anyone's going to jail, it's the client, not you. And uh, so this kind of applies here where if I'm going to give marital advice, make sure that if anyone's going to get divorced, it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So my answers are kind of predicated uh, based on those sideboards. But I don't know. For me, it's just been, I'm, I'm one. I'm blessed that 32 years ago, my wife decided to say yes. And I, I, I didn't even give her much time to change her mind. This was on a Sunday. I said, good, we're getting married next Saturday. You going to be there? So I was like, cool. So we did. We, we, you know, $20 in a blood test and we were down at the justice of peace. <clears throat> and, uh, it worked out for me. Uh, but in seriousness for me, it's been about, uh, when I'm not hunting and not involved in things that require my time and energy, she owns the calendar and year round, she owns the household budget. So, uh, if I'm going to do something that is a personal splurge indulgence for hunting, uh, it's either coming out of some way that I've made some money on the side or I, I, I often joke with and newlyweds, I'm like, well, that $1,000 bow you bought is a $5,000 bow. <laughs> 1000 for the bow, 2000 for something for the spouse, and 2000 for something for the family. And usually the person who asks the question is like, that's not the answer I wanted to hear. <laughs> but it is really the answer. Um, point being, don't be selfish with your time or your money. And uh, odds are you'll probably get to where you and I are, where we've been married we measure it in decades, not years. <laughs> and, uh, hopefully you get to hunt a lot along the way. But Yeah. No, and it, it does uh, take a, a very special spouse to put up with the lifestyle we have. And, you know, I think sometimes it's yeah. easy to overlook that and, and take that for granted. And um, it's important to remind them that we are grateful for the freedom they give us to do that. And, I, you know, we've, we've made it our career our our job you know whether we want to say it's a job or not it's it's how we're trying to pay the bills and you know there are people whose husbands 
go away for a business trip for a week or two or, you know, different things like that. And so I think my wife is very understanding that, hey, this is the job. This is what's supporting our family. And if he needs to be away for a week, um, she's understanding of that. It doesn't make it any easier necessarily, but um, she definitely allows me to to pursue those outdoor activities and adventures. And like you said, there's got to be some reciprocation there. Uh, the more that we go, yeah. the more that we need to be willing to give. And I'm certainly guilty of uh, needing reminded of that on a frequent basis, I think. Yeah. Well, my wife grew up in Vegas and, uh, Side note to that, when you introduce your wife, don't say, oh, yeah, I married a, a Vegas girl. That has a different connotation than <laughs> what you're thinking when it comes out of your mouth. Uh, but her family lives down there. And nothing personal against Vegas, but I'd rather lay out on the tarmac at McCarran International Airport in August than to spend a lot of time doing the Vegas thing. Yeah. But it's my wife's family, and you're there, and so... I act like I've never been happier when I go and do that. So <laughs> I, <clears throat> she knows that it's not my favorite thing to do, but you know, if I went there and just acted like a, you know, a putz and sniveled and whined and belly ache, uh, I don't think that would be the right thing to do. Yeah. And it would probably eventually have some impact on how much I get to do the things that are important to me. So, yep. and then in my situation, this is, I'm sure I'm going to get a whole lot of, oh, we feel so sorry for you, Randy. My wife is a walleye fishing fanatic, so I have to fish walleyes for four weeks every summer or else. Man. And I don't know what or else means, and I don't want to find out, so I just go walleye fishing for four weeks every summer. There you go. But whatever somebody has for their pleasures and hobbies, you know, for me, it's like, I mean, even if my wife's favorite thing was gardening, well, guess what? That's what I'm going to do when I'm not hunting. And uh, so far, knock on wood, it's it's got me to 32 years. And I'm a little uh, ways behind you, but it's got me to 20. It'll be 20 uh, here in three yeah. weeks. So, Yeah. What do you suppose caused these questions? I mean, we got a flood of them all of a sudden. You know, Did we say something? I don't know. I, I think we just have all these stories we share about all these adventures we're on, and people are like, how how do they get away with that? How are they always out <laughs> doing that? Uh, maybe that's it. I uh, I don't know what else to to say to it. Uh, yeah, I am blessed. I live in the greatest country in the world, and I have this amazing wife, and this is the job I've I've quote unquote worked to have. And, uh, now at this point in my life, I get up every day and I look at the whiteboard here at the office that says, why to promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause. That's a pretty easy thing to do every day. That's uh, one worth of getting this, up for. You know, disinherit the federal treasury and make sure every client is happy or, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's, uh, it works for me. I, I don't know. Maybe you should have an actual marriage expert on the podcast and then we could answer the questions for 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 keeps rather than make it up <laughs> that would set a bad precedence for our podcast though it would probably disable True. us from making up answers on everything else elk hunting related so 
Yeah. Do you have time for one more question or should we save the next one for the next podcast? I think we've got time. I, I, I took up a lot of time with right. my shed hunting story, so we've got to add some value now. Okay. Um, this person, this could apply to probably more to you than to me. Uh, any advice for a first time archery elk hunter who is hunting in wolf infested areas, say Northern or central Idaho, Northwest Montana or Northwest Wyoming, you only get to give them their two easy two two most important points that you would suggest. Hmm. Number one, stay mobile. That one's uh, stay mobile. Know, yeah, and I think that's okay. that's a piece of advice for any elk hunter, but it's overly critical if you're hunting in wolf country. You just those wolves are continually on the move; they're continually pushing the elk. The elk are continually moving to stay ahead of the wolves, and you know you might find them in one pocket one morning, and that evening they're not there, and the next morning you might find them four miles away, the same herd that just moved over into another drainage to. Uh, get away from where the wolves are actively hunting. So if you're hunting in heavy wolf country, you've got to be mobile. You can't get locked into, I'm just going to go hunt this one drainage for seven straight days. Uh, you might find elk there the first day and not see them there again. You might find them there the middle of the week. It just, they're always on the move. So keeping that in mind. Uh, second thing, if you're archery hunting, expect the elk to be less vocal. You know, there might be elk there, but they're not going to be as vocal. You aren't going to be able to locate them with bugles as readily as you will in places where there aren't wolves. Uh, so you're going to have to cover more country to find elk that are vocal if if that's important to you. And they're not vocal just because they've learned that that's like ringing the wolf dinner bell. Hey, I'm over here. Come check me out. Yep. And it's not that they <laughs> don't aren't do vocal. That. That. <laughs> they're just less vocal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are two really good points. Here's my solution to it. Go hunt somewhere else. <laughs> that, <laughs> I say that jokingly. Yeah. You know that where you've joined us to hunt in Montana. Uh, there's no shortage of wolves in those areas. Uh, yeah. In fact, you said you texted me that one night when you guys got off the mountain. Like, hey, we got wolves howling all around our camp here. Um, yep. I was waiting to hear, well, why aren't you shooting them then? But, <laughs> well, and that's, we actually know. took the next morning off to go and buy wolf tags and found out that you had to wait another 24 hours after you purchased the wolf tag to be able to use it. So we scrapped that idea yeah. and just changed locations. Yeah, but I, I hunt them. In, there's every place I hunt elk in Montana definitely has its share of wolves, but I don't think we have the densities you guys have in central and northern Idaho. Nowhere near. Uh, and so I've I've seen how the elk use the landscape slightly differently. Uh, the places they used to be more comfortable, they're not as comfortable. Uh, in the rifle season part, even though this person's question was related to uh, archery season, there's places like that spot I sent you where the elk migrate out of there and they used to come out and, okay, here's a group of 10, here's a group of 18, a group of 12, da, da, da. And every day there'd be small groups coming out. Now, here comes a group of 300 and that's it. If you aren't there when the big group comes out, there's none of this come back and, oh, there'll be more coming. It's like they're all in these <laughs> really big groups in rifle season and they're getting out of dodge and maybe that's not related to wolves but 
it's an observation I've had over the period of time that wolves have become far more prevalent there. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to make up an excuse of why that day I didn't see any. Well, they all came through two weeks ago. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, so for me, that's, that's not an archery hunting thing, but it's just knowing that elk have to change their behavior when another predator besides hunters is introduced to the landscape. They change their behaviors due to hunting pressure. They're also going to change their behaviors due to other predator pressures. So, yep, absolutely. Oh, man. Have you been hearing all this noise in my background? A little my, bit. In, in the building here, they, they got new, ten, new tenants moving in next door. And uh-huh. they got a reciprocating saw that's been running for the last two hours. It's like, aren't you guys going to run out of things to cut here pretty soon? <laughs> and uh, uh, it's my studio here, my recording studio, is soundproofed. But obviously, it's not soundproofed enough for the... So I apologize if people heard a bunch of jackhammering and <laughs> sawzalls and everything else. But that's why I don't own any, I don't own any power tools, right, Corey? You that's don't right. Worry about it coming from my part of the building because I don't own any of those tools. <laughs> I hunt and I fish. I don't do that kind of stuff. Something's wrong if you hear a power so. tool and Randy's in <laughs> attendance. That's yeah. Have you ever had a woodpecker damage the siding on your building? I haven't. No. Uh, well, I hadn't either until yesterday when a tenant calls and says, hey, we got a woodpecker here that's pretty much destroyed this part of the siding. I walk over there. I'm like, look at that. That's blankety blank. <laughs> the paint's all gone. He drilled the hole into the siding. And he's destroyed. I don't know how many thousands of dollars it's going to cost, but I got a pellet gun. And uh, I don't know what the rule is on woodpeckers, but I I think... Isn't there in Montana? I know there's this rule about you can defend your property from anything. Green oh, really? Bears, wolves, whatever. So nice. Yeah. So I don't know what I'm gonna do with that woodpecker. I went and put a little bit of mesh over his hole, but now he'll probably just drill another hole in another part of the eaves <laughs> and building. So I just thought you being a contractor, you would have encountered something like that. And I don't own any power tools, so I can't fix it. So I'm trying to hire some people to come and get it. So I spent the morning calling all my contractor buddies and they're like, well, I'm busy till this time next year. I'm like, well, I got to get rid of that woodpecker before that. I, you know, the tenant doesn't want a whole woodpecker family living in them in there all winter. So well, I think there's they, two morals to that story. Yeah. I was just going to say, One, I don't own a commercial rental property <laughs> <laughs> or hire a property manager. Exactly. So. No, I was going to say, I think that you have yeah. the solution to uh, take care of the the source of the problem, and then uh, you can fix it mm-hmm. later. But Yeah. Well, I'm kind of thinking that Bondo, you know, if you can't fix it with Bondo and duct tape, it probably, you know, just burn the building down and start over or something. <laughs> I better not joke that way. The building will burn down and someone will be like, hey, man, Newberg took that advice seriously. No kidding. Uh, but... So that's why I get to, that's another part with the marital advice thing. That's why I've been married for 32 years is I don't own any power tools. The motto at our house is pay the man. <laughs> if the washer fixed, if the refrigerator needs fixed, uh, you know, whatever. If this was my house, it's the same thing. Pay the man. 
I'm going fishing. Hey, you see where that woodpecker put those holes up there? Fix that. Send me the bill. I'm going fishing. So <laughs> that's that's a way better way for marital harmony. I mean, I I this is my own anecdotal observation that most marriages that end once they get into the double digit years of uh uh marriage, they end because of honeydews and home improvement and power tools. Interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. So once you get past 10 years, your greatest risk to your marriage is home repairs, fixing things, and having too many tools. And, and it might chainsaws. be. Chainsaws are like the yeah, worst. No, chainsaws are the best. I have two of them. Yeah. Well, you're, doub- you're doubling down on the risk, evidently. <laughs> you know, I'm calling your wife, telling her, get rid of those chainsaws. Ugh. I'm sorry. I, I'm Corey. We, you got to keep me on. You're going to have to guide this podcast here until I get over my COVID side effects. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm, I've got a. I'm like a drunk driver heading down the road to the way I've weaved this podcast in and out of the ditch and over past the railroad tracks through the rhubarb patch, everything else. It's, so it's anything good. else we want to leave them with? I I think we've polluted their minds enough for today. That's we've answered some questions. Yeah. We've uh, probably implemented more questions than than they had when they started listening, and we're uh, we'll come back stronger and better next yeah. time because of it. Yeah, the next emails will be about my mental health. Are <laughs> you okay? Yeah, do we need to send you somewhere, Randy? Hey, uh, it'll be to this question is for Corey. Corey, is Randy okay? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to leave them with this, okay? I'm going to leave them with if you want to do something for conservation, for access, for elk. Right now, out on their website, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation all summer is having these raffles and sweepstakes and and things you can do. Go out there, buy some raffle tickets, and support the cause we love. RMEF.org. That sounds that great. Works. That's a great way to end it. All right. Well, Corey, I'm going to let you go. I've kept you for so long, and I've accomplished just about nothing. Send me a bill for the time I've wasted. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll call ourselves, hopefully we can call ourselves friends when it's all done. Uh, absolutely. Now, appreciate the time and appreciate the folks listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Yeah. And leave your questions at elktalkpodcast.com, right? That's right. Oh, man. I can't believe I got that right. All right, Corey. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Thanks.